Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Welcome to the High Vibration Living Podcast. I'm your host, Chef Whitney Aronoff, founder of Starseed Kitchen and High Vibration Foods. Join me for conversation where we learn about food, wellness, beauty, travel, and spiritual concepts for high vibration living. Only you know what your body needs. Let this be the reminder that you have the power to tap in and know the food, self-care, and spiritual practices that will best serve you. I will be sharing my knowledge and learning with you from experts providing insight into nourishing all the layers of you, the physical, emotional, spiritual, and etheric bodies, so you can feel your best and live your dreams. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the High Vibration Living Podcast. I'm your host, Chef Whitney Aronoff, founder of Starseed Kitchen and High Vibration Foods. And this week, I have Jonathan Zaidman on the podcast. So excited for you guys to learn more about him in the Ecology Center. As you know, I am hosting one of the farm-to-table, community-table dinners at the Ecology Center in San Juan Capistrano on Friday, November 5th. Third, So I thought it would be fun to learn a little bit more about the Ecology Center, how it started, the location, the land that it's on, the history there, and also learn a little bit more about what really goes into creating a farm-to-table dinner, especially one of this magnitude when you're serving 160 people and you're giving them a farm tour and you're using ingredients that are in season. When you look at the Ecology Center's Instagram or website and you see the beautiful videos, even on their YouTube of these farm to table dinners, you know, we romanticize that experience, but what does it really take to really execute that? What are the ups and downs of it? How do the chefs navigate things only being available, you know, that week? There's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot for us to learn. Jonathan is an entrepreneur. He's an agricultural activist. He's a cancer survivor, which is very much what makes him so passionate about fruits and vegetables and eating in season and preparing and growing them properly. And he's also one of the founding team members of the Ecology Center in San Juan. He, you'll learn, had a different foundation, very similar to the work that they're doing in teaching kids about food and growing their own food. He had that in San Diego. He combined with the Ecology Center to bring more programs to the community to really help connect kids and families back to the land and back to the food that they're eating and getting their energy from. So I know you will really enjoy this. Um, It's really a beautiful conversation about reconnecting to old practices and old traditions that for some reason seem new again, Um, but it's really just the way we've always lived and there's so much there for us to nourish us and support us and the next generations to come. If you aren't familiar with the Ecology Center, it's located on a historic agricultural property that is today surrounded by urban sprawl, but it's a 28-acre regenerative, organic, certified farm and education center that serves as a hub really for Southern California's 
ecological movement. So you can go there and see the farm, tons of kids activities down there, lots of cultural activities on the weekends and in the evenings. They have a farm shop, they have a cafe where you can grab lunch. There's always something going on down there. So definitely check out their website for their activities. In this episode, we discuss farm to table dinners, outdoor cooking equipment, cooking over fire, the benefits of growing multiple varieties of you know, one particular type of produce on the farm, what is in season now, favorite guest chefs that he's experienced and learned from at their community table dinners, and the health benefits of simply spending more time outside. Enjoy this episode. And if you are going to be at the Ecology Center for my November 3rd dinner, I can't wait to see you. Please let me know if you've tuned into this episode when I come by and visit you at the dinner. Till then, cheers and enjoy. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chef. How's it going? It's great. How's everything down on the farm? Fantastic. Every day is special here. So how did you first get connected to the Ecology Center? Yeah, it's a great story. And there's both a long and a short version. But pretty much, I started my own nonprofit in San Diego doing environmental education in schools. And I did that for five years. One of the initiatives that we had just launched and was gaining a lot of visibility and steam and enthusiasm was this double-decker bus that we would take to schools. It had a kitchen on the bottom and a greenhouse on top. And the idea was really engaging with students around food, really food as a driver for health, not just personal, but environmental and community. So we had this great program, and and like I said, it was uh, very exciting. And right around that time, I had been connected to Evan, who's the founder of the Ecology Center. You know, both of us being young, energetic, fairly unconventional nonprofit founders, um, most of whom are are a lot older than than both of us. And we got together and and discussed both the challenges as well as the opportunities ahead of us individually and collectively as as a movement and as two different small organizations. And and this was almost 10 years ago. And pretty quickly, we decided that this work would be more fun and more effective if we did it together. So we merged our two nonprofits. This was in uh, the conversation started in 2015 and were formalized in 2016. So I guess eight years now. Uh, and that's really been it. That's fantastic. So how did you figure out what your role was going to be once you guys merged? <laughs> um, I mean, since then and today, I don't really have a specific role at the Ecology Center. Evan and I both operate as entrepreneurs, or I like to think of it as an intrapreneur, right? an entrepreneur from the inside. Uh, and, and we both really focus on what's most relevant, impactful, interesting, innovative, creative. So, you know, he wears a, a very specific hat around creative design and vision. And I'm really more focused on the community element. So anything that I feel is um, interesting and exciting to do around building community, like the dinners that we'll discuss, um, as well as we, we do a music festival that we hosted just for the second time this year. We do movie nights, uh, really, you know, wh- whatever I think seems most fun, to be honest, is what I focus on. <laughs> Which makes sense. That's what we should be focusing on in our businesses, because that's what will prosper, you know, when we love what we're doing. Yeah, Absolutely. So how did the community tables get created? I mean, what you guys do 
every Friday night, I would say is a lot of people's dream to experience, to go out on a farm, eat food that was harvested from that land in a gorgeous setting over real fire with friends and like-minded individuals. You guys have created and consistently executed a lot of people's dream. So how did that come to fruition? When did you guys launch the Community Table Program? Yeah, so the Ecology Center turns 15 this year in November. And from the very, very beginning, breaking bread was a central theme in the programming, the narrative, and the conversation. You know, as an environmental nonprofit, there's a lot of different ways that you can take your narrative and your messaging. And a lot of it, in my experience, having been in this field for 20 years now, is pretty uh, accusatory and, and a little intense. It's, you know, if you don't live this way, you're a part of the problem. And don't do this and don't do that. And, and that is certainly an important uh, message at times. But I quickly really found in, in my career that you're going to have a lot more success when you can draw people into the movement through beauty and experience and flavors and community and, and really say, you know, instead of being against something, being really for something. So for us, the easiest way to do that has always been by hosting culinary experiences. Uh, the community table started at the Ecology Center far before I was here, you know, 15 years ago. And it was even before this was a farm. You know, we were a, a one-acre historic farmhouse and a permaculture garden. And the idea was hosting meaningful conversations with farmers, chefs, and the community. So it was uh, once or two times and, and ultimately quarterly dinner that we would host, usually with 30 people in the courtyard right alongside the house. And we would invite a farmer out and we would invite a chef out. And we would have this interactive conversation around a meal. And that grew over the years uh, till about 2020, 2021, when we introduced what we called the Hearth Dinner Series. Uh, and that was a summer with Chef Tim Byers from Texas, a James Beard Award winner who really wrote the book, quite literally, called Smoke, about cooking over live fire. Uh, so he's an expert. Uh, and a culinary anthropologist that's very excited about experimenting and telling stories around food. So he came out here for the summer and we did dinners every Friday and Saturday night, all cooked on fire in that same dining room where we do the community table dinners now. Uh, and that was after we had taken over the farm. So it was in deep relationship to the ingredients that were 50 feet away. And that was our first step into a more consistent expression of hospitality and kind of holding that culinary piece and the operations that go along with that and the community, of course, right? From both a marketing and storytelling standpoint, as well as just from a, how do you literally show up and, and sell these seats and uh, make it worth people's time and while. So we did that for a full summer, uh, like I said, doing two dinners a week, Friday, Saturday, and it was really challenging. You know, I, I come from a bit of a food service background myself, so I know that many of us do it seven days a week, but there's something particularly energetically challenging about doing it in the middle of the farm, which mm -hmm. is that it's not, it's not a restaurant, right? So mm -hmm. you pretty much need to set it up every single day and start from scratch. Uh, you're not running the same menu every day. You're running a different menu every day based off of what's available. So um, it was a very, very successful and very challenging expression, and that led us in 
the following year into re-envisioning the roots of the community table dinner, which was a different chef and farmer a few times a year. And we said, hey, we now have this fairly world-class facility, this beautiful outdoor kitchen, this amazing regenerative organic farm. What if we were to just ratchet that up? And it was a total experiment because we both didn't know if there would be enough chefs that would be interested in participating, as well as if the community would be interested in participating. Uh, but very fortunately, from the, the first year on, we're now in our second year of doing full-time, every Friday night community table dinners. There's been nothing but enthusiasm from chefs and community. You know, we have this dinner series that, you know, I say humbly, sells out every single week and is full of new people who are excited about the conversation and want to participate at a higher level and want to learn and really enjoy a farm tour before their dinner and really like the speaking points that are part of the narrative tied into the story. Uh, so what that looks like now and it has for the past two years is this modern iteration of Community Table where every Friday night we have a different chef, usually from LA, San Diego, Orange County, sometimes from Northern California, sometimes from the Inland Empire. This week, uh, we actually have a chef that's coming up from Mexico. He's in Valle de Guadalupe. So we have, I'd like to call it the bioregion, which is pretty much 50 to 75 miles in either direction. Uh, so we have a different chef every Friday night. Uh, we have this really beautiful world-class outdoor, I call it a dining room, but it's really kind of, uh, you know, redwood tables and flowers and candles under the stars and, and string lights. Uh, and then we have this kitchen where everything is cooked on fire. Uh, so we have multiple different uh, cooking appliances, as I might call them, but I'm talking about like a Santa Maria oven or a wood-burning smoker or a wood-burning pizza oven. And then we've got this kind of central, um, really there's nothing else to call it, but kind of like inferno situation of tiered and, and stacked roasting uh, layers and everything comes off of the farm. So the chef that week gets a produce availability list from our farm team. Uh, we welcome them to come a day or two or three if they like in advance. They can walk the field, they can help harvest, they can conceptualize a menu. Uh, and then we serve that meal to 72 guests. Uh, and like I said, really tie in the story piece. So it begins with farm tour and just a, a conversation and hopefully an interactive conversation where it's not just me leading, but really people bringing their own interests and questions and ambitions into the, the narrative and, um, and, and talking about like, what are these issues that are ahead of us? Not just what are the challenges, but what are the opportunities and, and how can we create a future of health for our, our bodies and, and our environment and our wildlife and our waterways and why does all that matter? And then how can we be a part of the solution? And then, like I said, you get to kind of coalesce that around a delicious and beautiful meal and what can go wrong? <laughs> so now all of a sudden you are shifting culture and behavior through something that was fun and unique and special instead of yelling at people for being jerks. Yeah, I find when you're sitting down at that table after you've spent, you know, an hour on the land, you've walked the land, you conversed in nature, maybe you got to try something that's in the fields. And you go and sit down, your nervous system's already been calmed because of the time that you've now spent outside. And as you're enjoying this meal with new friends, new people that you're sitting next to, and you're under the stars, you realize you want more of this in your life. And you can't help but think, how do I experience this more often? 
How can I recreate this in my own life? How can I do this with friends and family? How can I take this back to wherever I live and do it again and again and again? That was my takeaway. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because the dinners are really quite opposite from how we break bread and how we share meals in our society today. You know, they are outdoors. Uh, you're sitting at a table with eight people, maybe four or five or six of whom you hadn't met before. Um, you're certainly not encouraged to be on your phone the whole time, right? You're, it's probably a three or three and a half hour experience. So if you think about like how we're eating mostly, it's either like takeout or delivery or you're going, you're sitting at a table maybe with someone and you're on your phone and you're in and you're out and like none of those things build health and none of them build relationship. You know, you, you can't via a food delivery service learn about where your food is coming from or who's preparing it. It's quite the opposite. So, you know, this, it, it almost shocks people back into how things used to be. Like I like to talk a lot about, um, you know, ecological design or permaculture or agroforestry, these practices that we have here at the Ecology Center, you know, a lot of times they're lauded as innovation. And I like to think of it as really quite the opposite. It's just, this is how it used to be. You know, this is when your grandma or great grandpa talks about like, oh, I grew this and that was our family's lineage of this particular seed and why we grew it. Or this is how we canned or preserved things. Like, everybody had relationship to food for all of human history. And it's not until quite recently that we've industrialized that and not just the process of agriculture, but really even the process of consumption and production, right? Like we've industrialized our kitchens. We've industrialized how we consume food and uh, none of it really ultimately has built health for any of the things around us. So uh, as much as this is kind of the new model that we're introducing, it really is just how things work. Yeah, is reminding us of the old model. And what I love about this is it also is getting us comfortable with eating maybe new foods, introducing, you know, new varieties into our diets. When I volunteered in the kitchen, I had to slice up a ton of zucchini, enough zucchini for, you know, over 160 people to eat. And there were zucchini varieties and colors and shapes I had never seen before. There was also spikes on the zucchini and I hadn't experienced spikes on a zucchini. So I'd love to know, you know, how you guys choose the number of varieties that you grow at the Ecology Center. Yeah, I mean, so we essentially took over a, an organic farm that was a commercial organic farm that grew pretty much three things, strawberry, mm -hmm. cucumber, and Romanesco. And that was because when that farm was established in the 90s, that was the only way to make a profitable endeavor, at least in their mind, which is how do we grow enough to fulfill wholesale demands in our bioregion and sell to the mother's markets or Whole Foods or Costco's mm -hmm. that might want to buy these strawberries. And Ultimately, when we took over the farm in 2019, we had a vision to do the exact opposite, which is that instead of commodifying, you know, really focus on the quality and focus on the culture and all of that, you know, for all of human history is rooted in diversity, not in commodification uh, or monoculture. So, you know, like I feel that we learn as a society in the Western world, there's like five fruits and vegetables. You know, you've got red apples and you've got orange oranges and you've got yellow bananas and that's it. You know, that's the things that we teach kids. And the truth is that no, actually, in fact, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different varieties. And within those unique varieties, right? Like I was fortunate enough to go and study the history of corn in Oaxaca, Mexico. And they were telling us that there are 49 main 
varieties of corn, but within each one of those, there's hundreds and hundreds of different sub-varieties that have different culinary application and flavors, or maybe pest resistance or weather resistance, or some might be for popping corn, some might be for flint corn or wheat corn. Uh, so, you know, for us, it's uh, an opportunity to teach people, right? Well, by giving them something they've never had before, uh, it's an opportunity to awake senses, uh, an opportunity to maybe break down some of those preconceived barriers. Well, I don't like squash. Well, maybe you've never had this type of squash, right? So, you know, the, the beautiful thing about our dinner series is that it's, it's a fixed course dinner. You know, you're getting the five or six courses that you're getting. And, and I like to tell people, yes, please let us know if you're vegan or uh, have celiac. You know, but pretty much otherwise, if you don't like tomatoes, tonight you're trying tomatoes. Uh, and by and large, you know, it's amazing. We do this every single week. I don't think we've gotten any complaints once about like, oh, I didn't like that. Uh, you come from food service. I come from food service. I mean, if you were able to get away with one complaint in a night, you were usually having a pretty successful night. But we've somehow kind of opened up uh, this opportunity to experience something in which you come in without preconceived notions, which is like, this is what I want and this is what I was expecting, and more with an open heart towards what if I were to learn something today. And, and that, like, you know, moment of curiosity ultimately is what I hope drives a little bit of that behavior change in the people that experience it. Hi, I'm Chef Whitney Aronoff. As a personal chef, I created custom organic spices for my clients. These blends are of the highest quality with no added sugar, MSG, caking agents, or any junk. I want you to have the same access to good quality seasonings, which is why I've launched my line of organic spice blends. High Vibration Foods by Starseed Kitchen is my collection of chef-crafted organic spice blends made with only good-for-you ingredients. I use organic source spices, ancient mineral-rich Redmond Real Salt, prepare the blends listening to Kundalini mantra music, then charge the jars with the quartz Giza crystals for a true high-vibration experience. You can now purchase my most requested blend, 11 Magic Herbs and Spices, on StarseedKitchen.com. Use code STARSEED for 10% off your purchase. Can't wait for you to enjoy. So take us on a farm tour right now in the fall season. What would we see for showing up for dinner at the Ecology Center? What would we see before we walked around um, or sat down to the table? Yeah, well, I mean, I think every farm tour or even like opportunity to be outdoors starts in a moment of grounding, right? And to me, that's uh, taking stock or observation of where are we? Uh, so I like to take that both from the literal all the way out to the metaphysical or geopolitical. And I start with always acknowledging that this is a Hashemin land. That's the Native American community that was here well before us. Uh, we owe a lot of the stewardship practices at the Ecology Center and the programmatic as well as organizational intentions and values to that community. So I begin with that every time we have any conversation. Um, I like to then do a very quick narrative arc of food systems, where we were, where we are, where we're going. And, and that can be, I mean, I'm happy to have a three-hour conversation about that, but most people have maybe a 15-minute kind of palette for, for hearing about that. But I, I like to talk about what I mentioned to you, which is that, you know, for all of human history, we have relationship to our agriculture. Communities were built around farms as a survival strategy and as a need. 
Um, and then coming out of the you know World War One, World War Two, and out of the Great Depression, both because of a food scarcity concern as well as an abundance of petrochemicals, we industrialized our food system. And just to really shorten that, we replaced humans and animals with chemicals and machinery, and it's been a pretty bad idea. Uh, you know, we essentially took a driver of health and turned it into one of disease. You know, to the point now where agriculture is the single leading driver towards climate emissions on the planet. So you took this thing that nourished us all for tens of thousands of years, and, and now it's become literally a, a center for, for disease. Um, not to mention our own bodies. Right? Like we're living in a time in which two in three men, including myself, are going to experience cancer in their life. And it's directly related to our environment and our surroundings and what we put in our body and what we put on our body. Uh, and all of those are agricultural practices. So that's a, a bit of the conversation on, uh, I like to call it the bummer side, uh, which is that, you know, for the past 75 years, we haven't done a great job. Uh, we didn't value health, we valued convenience. Uh, and we really threw culture out the window when we did that. And, and now, you know, I like to really awaken people to the fact that that doesn't need to be the future that we inherited. You know, for, for much of, of human history, it wasn't that way. So it's actually not complicated or difficult to envision uh, steps forward in, in which we do build health. And, and that's what our farm represents. So we're a humble... 28 acres in San Juan Capistrano, about a mile from the five, a mile from the ocean, you know, right in between LA and San Diego. So it's accessible to everybody. And, and this is just one small example of what it could look like if we were to bring agriculture and choose health for our communities. And it doesn't all need to look like this, but it's one way. And, and what that looks like today, you know, and literally is a diversified 28 acres of what we call regenerative organic agriculture, which both means it's organic as well as practicing soil conservation, animal welfare, and farm worker rights. Uh, and it's represented in an agroforestry where you have 250 varieties of fruits, vegetables, herbs, flowers, berries, and trees. And ideally, there is no one single monoculture that's representing the whole farm. Uh, so today you were to walk out there, you would find all sorts of squash, you would find a lot of beautiful herbs right now, we have amazing basil, we have apples coming into season, we have stone fruit coming out, we've got eggplant and cucumber. Right now it's a little bit of a, a unique summer to fall transition, so we're seeing the tomatoes and cucumbers kind of start to slow down and starting to see some of the winter crops kind of pick up a little bit. Lovely. I can't wait to see what's down there. I'm going to volunteer at another dinner in a few weeks before my own. So I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm just excited to play and touch the food and, and, and walk around because it's always different what you find, you know, at the ecology center because of the varieties versus obviously what you find at a grocery store, or even a farmer's market sometimes. Yeah, you know, I think, and I don't blame farmers for this because it's the hardest job in the world, but you are swimming uphill. So when you're trying to convince people to try new things, but you're also trying to make a living, it's pretty tough for farmers to, you know, really focus on diversity and promote new varieties that people may not be familiar with or accustomed to. Uh, so you, you do end up just, because you have to sell your thing, focusing on that which folks are most comfortable with. And you don't get a lot of the cultural varieties that you might see here. So tell me about some of the really creative 
food preparations you've seen from chefs that have worked in the outdoor kitchen at the Ecology Center? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so much fun to get to work with a different chef every week because you see all sorts of unique and, and fun expressions. Um, we just had our biggest dinner of the year is called Green Feast. That's more of a fundraiser, and that's about 200 people on a long table in the middle of the field. And we get to work with some amazing chefs for that. And, and one of our favorite chefs uh, named Sarah Glover, who's yeah. in Australia, she's a bit of an adventure chef. She does a lot of really cool cooking out in the wild. Uh, she led the main at Green Feast a few weeks ago, and this really beautiful fish on the log, uh, which is a bit of a indigenous uh, expression of, of cooking this fish where she took yellowtail and butterflied them and hammered them onto a log and essentially created a fire that was uh, right on it and, and stuffed them with lemongrass and uh, it was both beautiful and from what I hear delicious. I'm vegan so I didn't try it but uh, you know fortunately for me I would say 90 plus percent of what we make here is plant-based you know because we are a fruit flower herb and vegetable farm um, you know when we do focus on animal protein it's something that comes from 20 miles away so we're looking at you know Dory Fleet in Newport or Dana or San Diego for seafood and that's really just about it um, so I, yeah just in terms of creative things gosh I, I really enjoy because, like I said, I'm vegan, seeing what chefs do with fruits and vegetables, to be honest. And well, Tim Byers, one of my favorite chefs, lives in Texas, you know, had a pretty much pit barbecue joint, is about as meat-oriented as you can possibly get. And he is the, one of the most creative chefs that I've ever seen that work with fruits and vegetables. And I really appreciate that from him. And I hear it from a lot of chefs who, you know, kind of say, like, yeah... Uh, they may like meat or their clients might like meat and that's cool but ultimately that's it's not that hard to do and there's not many different ways to do it but you can actually get very very creative with what comes out of the ground um, so I, I'm I get excited about anything but to be completely honest the things that I like the most are the ones that really feature and focus the ingredients heavily so you know just like a very simple tomato and cucumber salad is like, that's the best meal I've ever had if you have good ingredients, you don't need to do a lot to them to make it delicious. Yeah, all you need is really good olive oil, really good sea salt, some fresh herbs. But when the food is freshly picked, you get so much more flavor with your meal. Yeah. Totally. And you're getting varieties that naturally have more flavor. That's, that's my selling point to folks, you know, because we also have a farm stand here. And it is, you know, it's a very beautiful and very diverse expression that is really kind of counter to anything that you might see in a store. And we do have conversations with folks around the fact, oh, your strawberries are $7 a pint. You know, at the other store, they're 6 And And I like to talk to people, and I understand the issues around accessibility. And part of my job is to make this world and work more accessible to lower-income or food-insecure families. And that's a whole different conversation. But for a lot of us, it's really just the fact that we haven't prioritized, you know, real food and the cost of not just production but distribution. Uh, like I like to talk about the fact that, and most people don't know this, we pay less for food in relation to our individual wealth than humans ever have in all of history. You know, it used to be that the majority of your resources went to food, right, as a survival need. And it's really only since this industrialization era and, you know, some of our parents' microwave dinner and, and really focusing on the convenience 
and, and on the economics that we've really driven the price of food way, way down. Uh, and that's not a good thing, right? That's come at a cost. It's come at a cost of, of our health and of our environment. Uh, so I like to talk about food as an investment, which is like, all right, you invest in your future financially, you invest in your children's education, you invest in your safety by buying a vehicle that meets your needs or standards. But, you know, we still talk to people every single day who have plenty of resources and they say, oh, the berries are a dollar more. Uh, so uh, for me, it's, it's, okay, you can talk about the environment, you can talk about nutrition. And that some people are driven by that conversation and more and more, it's definitely a big movement. Uh, but the easier and, and simpler conversation, in my opinion, is just to be like, great, try one of each. Uh, I guarantee you, like once you have these strawberries, you're not going to have any other strawberries. And it's not because ours are particularly special or better. Like if you grew your own in your backyard, they would also be special and better. You know, the fact about strawberries that you get at Costco is that they come from Central America. They were picked pre-ripened so that they ripen in transit. They were put in plastic and they were put on a bus or on a train. And then two weeks later, they got here. Like, of course, they're not delicious. But we're going to convince ourselves that they are because you just drove to Costco and you paid to buy them and they look like a strawberry and they smell like a strawberry and they're red. So might as well. But it's really no comparison. And, and you know this if you've been to a farmer's market, if you've ever gardened, you know, you're eating that first tomato of the season. And then you go to a restaurant and you get a BLT. You're like, yeah, this is garbage. It tastes like nothing. Absolutely. I had my parents grow tomatoes outside our house and had them grow strawberries as well and, and blackberry bushes. And, you know, it's so exciting when you see them and taste them that they often don't even make it back to the kitchen. <laughs> you just can't help but eat them right there. And when I was at the ecology center for a community table dinner, you took us into the strawberry fields and you mentioned that there are a number of varieties of strawberries that you guys grow. How many varieties do you guys grow of strawberries? You know, it's really year by year, uh, but well over six to eight and and that's for many reasons you know the, the some of the strawberries have different culinary applications right like we might grow strawberries specifically for jamming versus one that's good for you pick that's a little bit hardier for the kids and their fingers uh but really it's also for for pest resistance you know if you put all of your energy and resourcing and first strawberries are a big one you know it's something that this farm has grown for many years well before us and it's something that this community really enjoys and who doesn't love strawberries but it's a significant investment in, in labor and in seed and in time. So, you know, you're starting your strawberries in, in December and it's a lot of land. And if all of a sudden you grow one variety and then come strawberry season in March or April, it fails because of the weather or because of disease or because of pest. All of a sudden, you know, you've lost a, a quarter or half of your farm revenue that you were counting on that year. So for us, it's a bit of an insurance policy to grow a few different varieties, uh, as well as, once again, the different flavors and, and culinary applications, and then the educational experience of, once again, bringing people into the fact that there is more than one strawberry. There is, there's dozens of strawberries, and um, there's a lot of reasons why we might grow different ones. Yeah, and it's just such a good reminder that there's more than one thing. There's more than one type of banana. You know, there's more than one type of cucumber. Um, sometimes we all just need to see and taste that again to understand the variety in food, which I think then just makes you reflect on life and the variety and all the experiences that are out there, all the ways that you can experience life. I think it just snowballs into conscious expansion. Absolutely. And, and opportunity. Like I, I think of seasonality in our cuisine as an opportunity, not as a restriction. You know, people say like, oh, I'm bummed that I can't get 
you know, cucumbers until June or July. I say like, you know, if you think about it the other way, which is uh, abundance mindset versus scarcity, how special is it to have that first cucumber of the season? You're going to cherish it so much more than just something that you can always get all of the time by clicking a button on your computer and it shows up at your front door. You know, we don't value the things that we don't invest in. So when everything is too easy, then there's really a lack of uh, emotional and, and energetic commitment to that thing. Well, what is the produce or the fruit that you're most looking forward to in this season? Mm, good point. I mean, I love all of it. To me, the apples, the pears don't do that great on our farm. It's just not cold enough. But we have these really great apples that are starting to ripen that are really delicious and and super beautiful and, and kind of tell a great story of the farm. Um, but, you know, coming into the winter squashes and uh, I, to be honest, anything that's seasonal is my favorite thing that day. I feel the same way. I live for the apples in the fall and I live for some kapocha squash, some butternut squash um, and any soup that I can make with seasonal vegetables. That's what, that's what I'm down for. Same. I probably make five soups a week. So whatever's coming out of the farm is whatever's souping that week. Yeah, yeah. And then you can take the same ingredients and make it over and over again, but you can just change the way you chop the vegetable or decide to puree the soup. And you have a whole different meal using the same ingredients simply by changing the, the preparation just a little bit. Well, I look forward to learning some soup techniques from you. <laughs> I'm really into pureed soups right now. I have a client that only likes their soups pureed. And it's completely changed the way I enjoy souping. Okay, looking forward to it. And I will tell you, if you use a hand immersion blender versus a Vitamix, you'll still get a completely different consistency of soup. Okay. <laughs> the little things, you know? The hey, little yeah, things. It's enough. Well, what, what would you say is the number one thing you want people to take away from their experience when they visit the Ecology Center? Or they enjoy a community table dinner. Yeah. So for me, like not everybody is driven by a passion for agriculture. You know, we are a farm here, but we're so much more than that. And like I keep saying over and over again, we're a, a center, a space, a demonstration or a model for health in a lot of meaningful ways. So for me, it's like almost whatever lights your fire is what I'm excited about. And and if it's agriculture and a multi-generational or cultural commitment to that, which where you came from, that's great. Or if it's a passion for the environment and protection and conservation and sustainability, that's great. Or if it's one that's driven by health, I think that's great. Like I said, you know, like I'm a cancer survivor and a lot of my health journey is really driven through what I eat. You know, my wife and I were very committed to we've I've been vegan for 14 years I've been in this movement for a long time so I've always tried to really center around health but um, you know in healing it's a big part of, of what you do and unfortunately when we went to, to my oncologist in the, the beginning of my chemo treatment and asked him how to incorporate a, a healthy diet into a treatment he said I don't know <laughs> uh, because they don't you know that's not part of their training and it's just because they're so so focused on a very specific um, solution but to me, it's like it's whatever is going to most effectively inspire folks to feel like they can be a part of the solution. And, and whatever that is, you know, for a lot of people, it's wildlife. For many, it's waterways. You know, we live here in such a beautiful coastal environment and we don't realize that agriculture is one of the most harmful 
uh, practices for, for our waterways and, and what we're putting out into the planet. So um, for me, it's come out and have a beautiful dinner, meet some nice people, have a good time, and walk away feeling as if there's hope for a better and healthier opportunity moving forward. Since you have, you know, changed your diet, started to eat vegan, focus on the quality that of food that you've eaten, what would you say are the three things that you learned in your journey of healing and now thriving that maybe a doctor wasn't able to guide you on that has really shifted how you feel in your body and how healthy you know you are now? Yeah, I mean, growing up, I grew up in a Mexican Jewish household, so animal protein is as prominent as it is in any other household in any culture in the world. Uh, and I kind of had a, a life and experience of, you know, eating heavy meals and feeling sluggish. And that was just what you did. You know, there was no alternative and you didn't really think twice. And it wasn't until, and this is over 20 years ago, becoming a vegetarian and, and almost 15 vegan, I realized that food and your diet can actually be energy giving. Uh, and, and you can eat a meal and feel better instead of worse. Uh, so that for me obviously has been, you know, something that I obviously incorporate every single day. Um, but, you know, some of the other, I think, simple lessons are one that it's not that hard, you know, shifting your diet, I find tends to be one of the most intimidating things that people can do in their life for a lot of reasons. Uh, namely because eating really kind of along with sleeping is one of the things that we most do. So when you talk about making a change, it feels incredibly daunting and intimidating for someone to conceptualize, how am I going to change something that I do every day, multiple times a day? Uh, but I, I find that once you get over that first kind of mental block, because there really isn't necessarily much more of a block, there's, you know, it doesn't need to be a financial block. Shifting the way that you eat can, based off of what your, your budget is, can be more affordable. I mean, the, the poorest countries in the world eat predominantly a plant-based diet. Uh, you know, if, if you were to go exclusively to fancy vegan restaurants, yeah, you're going to pay more. But if you're going to focus on simple legumes and uh, plant-based proteins, you're going to spend less. Um, so, you know, getting past that thought of the financial barrier um, in in our culture, a lot of times, especially uh, for men, there's a bit of like a hyper masculinity around how you eat. You know, we have this narrative that men need to be the grillers in the family and, and need to eat the steak and, you know, and have these big portions. And for a lot of folks, fortunately not for me, there's a kind of a big step that they need to take in order to see themselves in a different light where they say, oh, right, I'm not losing any of my masculinity by not eating that way or not being that expression in the kitchen. Um, actually, it's very interesting to you know, be interested in, in fruits and vegetables and uh, a lot of culinary things you can do around them. So getting past that barrier, um, that I didn't find to be particularly challenging. And then the, the access, you know, not everybody is here in Southern California. Not everyone's going to come visit the Ecology Center. But we're very fortunate to live in a time in which pretty much anywhere that you are, you're probably pretty close to some maybe not farm, but farmer's market, you know, mm -hmm. and, and just finding that, that space and building those relationships and valuing and investing in that and getting to know people and asking them, hey, what are you growing right now? And what are you growing next season? And why do you grow that? And why does this look a little different than what I've seen before? 
uh, adds, I think, a richness and a culture to your diet that you really can't replace through a store or a subscription service. Um, so all of those things are just, you know, simple little, uh, they're decisions, ultimately, that we make. And, and as with every decision, and especially when it's oriented in behavior change, the hardest part is just deciding that you're going to make it, and then everything else comes after that. Absolutely. Well, can you leave our listeners with maybe one healthy tip they can consider adding into their life if they were to just to choose one? Yeah. The way that we eat is so critical. We've just talked about it for 45 minutes. But I think one that we don't think about all that much is just to be outside. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to think about the health benefits of literally just going outdoors. And for me, I get to experience it every day because I work on a farm. So uh, I take my phone calls or I take a walk for a meeting. So I get that every day. But I also very intentionally incorporate nature and outdoor space into my life as much as possible. I just got back Tuesday from a week in BC, you know, traveling in the mountains and the provincial parks up there. And, and that for me is energy giving, uh, spending time outdoors and, you know, observing nature and wildlife. So that would be mine. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the High Vibration Living Podcast. It's so nice to connect with you and have you share your wisdom with a larger community that can't necessarily get to the farm. So I appreciate that. And I look forward to seeing you down at the Ecology Center very soon. Thank you for having me. We'll see you soon. And anyone that's interested is welcome to come down and visit us and uh, come and ask for me. I'd be happy to show you around. Perfect. Thank you, Jonathan. Absolutely. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the High Vibration Living Podcast. Please leave a five-star rating and review wherever you are tuning in from to help more listeners like and find this podcast. And if you really loved what you heard today, pay it forward and send this episode to a friend or loved one. For more Starseed Kitchen, visit starseedkitchen.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Be sure to pick up a jar of my high vibration foods, organic spices, which you can purchase on starseedkitchen.com. You can find me and follow along on my chef adventures on all your favorite social media channels at Whitney Aronoff. Thanks again for tuning in. Cheers to you and your health. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.